Throughout the history of our world, mankind has witnessed the rule of of several wicked men. Men who rule with fear. Men who rule with murderous lusts. Men who desire to control the world. As I mentioned that, I'm confident that there have been many names that have flashed through your mind. Perhaps you've considered the idea that maybe, just maybe, our own government in the United States of America is not too far off from that, at least on that trajectory. I want to introduce you to, or at least refresh your memory, of an emperor, an emperor who governed in the way that I've described. His name was Emperor Nero. Nero ruled over Rome, and he did so with an intense desire to to build to build a kingdom for himself. In order to fulfill that desire, Nero burned the city of Rome so that he could build a more extravagant palace for himself. Now that, of course, and rightly so, upset the people who had no doubt who started the fires. They knew it was Nero. And after Emperor Nero got word that the blame was pointed at him, he knew that he needed to put the blame on someone else. The most natural decision for him was to blame the Christians. The Christians were already looked down upon, and so that's the, that's the very thing that he did. That, cro- that caused a great uproar against them. And that began a period of persecution for all those who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Nero, he went, he went far beyond simply blaming them for these fires, he actually began tying them up and setting them on fire to light up his garden parties. It's also been said that Nero would, would sew up Christians in the skins of wild animals and attack them with dogs until they breathed their last breath. Now that's behavior that would cause even the, the pagans feel sick to their stomachs. Nero was relentless. Now Peter, who was likely writing from Rome, was fully aware of that situation. While the persecution occurring there was not likely within the same degree, it's no doubt that the believers within the five provinces that Peter writes to were, were not applauded for their faith. Peter mentions the act of suffering for righteousness in 1 Peter 3.14. In 3.16, he speaks to the receiving of slander for good conduct. In 4.12, he mentions the need to not be surprised by fiery trials as if there were strange things for those who are aliens and exiles in this world. In 4.19, he points them to entrusting their souls to God and their suffering. And in 5.9, Peter encourages his readers to stand firm because the afflictions that they face are the same among the brethren who are throughout the world. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be aware of these same matters. We are, as Paul said in Philippians 3.20, citizens of heaven. This, this world is not our home. We are In this life, going to experience our own fair share of trials, our own fair share of troubles, 
And we'll discuss that further as we get into verses 3 through 9 of 1 Peter this morning. But I want to remind you and, and point your attention to the one true God who gives us a hope beyond this world. It is a hope that, it, that causes us to praise Him. So with that being said, let's read the Word of God together. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Our focus this morning will be verses 3 through 9, but I'll begin reading in verse 1 to provide some context. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith a salvation of your souls. Peter begins in verse 3 with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins this text with a praise to God for what he's done. And what he's done according to his mercy, he says. That phrase, blessed be God, or even blessed be the Lord, as you often see in the Old Testament, is, is common throughout all of Scripture. Ephesians 1.3 states something very similar. It says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The Apostle Paul, also writing in 2 Corinthians 1.3, wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And in 1 Corinthians 11.31, the Apostle Paul again speaks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever. Now, in total, that's a Greek word that's used eight times in the New Testament. And every single time it's used of God. It is never used of man. And so this is not the same as saying to someone, God bless you, or even acknowledging that you are blessed yourself. You are, and please acknowledge that. God has blessed you. Everything you have, you've received from him. Amen? So acknowledge 
that your blessings have come from God. But this word is great praise for God. God himself and God alone cannot be used or it should not be used and is not used in Scripture for just anyone. It's reserved for our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I first approached this passage and I saw Peter giving praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I had to stop and ask myself, what what exactly is he trying to say there? Isn't that something that Peter's audience would have already known, that he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that something that we would already know? And I think the answer to that is yes. But there's a, a, a greater implication there. I don't believe this text or any text of Scripture that it was simply slapped on to the end of that verse or the end of that sentence. And as good Bible students, we should intend and desire to know what that means. This is the very Word of God. So turn to John chapter 5. That's the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 18. Very briefly, we won't stay there long. I just want you to see this for yourselves. Verse 18, chapter 5, says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father making himself equal with God. And so, you see there, the Jews were not happy with Jesus because they knew what he was saying when he said God was his father. He was making himself equal with God. Peter says that this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he would be very specific about who he was talking about. He would be very specific about the God that he was referring to. There is only one God in this, in this universe. There's only one God who created this universe. The men of this world have, have no doubt crafted their own gods, have made their own gods in their own images. But Peter points to the one true God, the only God worthy of praise. Rome, what was known for a, a pantheon of gods, multiple gods, And therefore, it could be that Peter had that in mind. But while the pagans may worship other gods, Peter's not referring to just another god, small g. He's referring to the one God, the God who came to the earth in the form of a servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, And the God who intimately knew God as his Father. Now I want to draw your attention to something here in in our text. Have you noticed that Peter only offers indicative statements in this text? By that I mean he's, he's making statements of fact. He's not giving any imperatives or commands. His first imperative would not come until verse 13, which is beyond what we'll be covering this morning. And so, this means that that our entire text, sorry about that, Peter does not make any commands or, or requests of his audience. 
So when you come to verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is not telling them to praise God. He's simply doing it. He's simply exalting him for, for all the things that are going to follow. Those realities that follow this, verse 3, cause Peter to break out in worship. He's essentially saying that I'm going to praise God for the things that he's done. God has, according to his mercy, Peter says here, caused us to be born again. What other response could a believer possibly have to a great God who's done this for us? And maybe it'll help us understand if we, if we define what mercy is. Mercy is the withholding of punishment from someone who rightly and justly deserves it. Mercy is forgiving someone when they don't deserve it. It's to have pity on someone, to have compassion on them. My brothers and sisters, God has had pity on you to save you from your sins and the punishment that you rightly deserve. Doesn't that cause you to praise Him and give thanks to Him? It is that abundant mercy that was, his, was God's motivation or, or the means by which he has saved us and caused us to be born again. It's, it's, that, it's the motivation for which he has given us new life. In Romans 9, don't need to turn there, but in Romans 9, 15, Paul quotes from Exodus, Exodus 33, 19. And that's when God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the point in that is God is saying, I will do as I please, according to the perfect counsel of my own will. It is I who makes these determinations. No one chooses for me. No one influences me. I am Yahweh. It's my mercy and I will bestow it as I see fit. And that's in response to Paul, who writes in the previous verses about Jacob and Esau. God loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Referring back to, to Malachi chapter 1. Paul makes it clear that this choosing, this, this setting apart, was done prior to our birth. Because he makes the, the, the point with Jacob and Esau, that at this point, they, they were not. When God chose them and God bestowed his mercy on them, they were not yet physically born. They were still in the wombs, and it was not because of anything they had done or, or would do, whether good or evil. It was simply according to God and his mercy. Paul establishes that, that God is the potter, we're the clay, and who is man to question him? The creation would not despise its creator and re respond to him in such a way, would it? So God has had mercy on undeserving sinners. He, he initiated this new birth in us. I hope you can see the sovereignty of God in salvation there. I, I want to, to speak to that being born again. 
that Peter, that Peter mentions there. Turn with me in John chapter 3, probably a text you are familiar with. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Notice there in verse 3. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's a necessity to the new birth. There's a necessity of being born again. You must be born again if you're to enter the kingdom of God. If you're to be in heaven with Christ in all of his glory, you must be born again. That's a statement that Nicodemus was confused by. And he asked him, how how can this be? You can't enter your mother's womb for a second time, can you? Jesus, of course, was not, as Nicodemus appeared to think, referring to a natural birth, a a second natural birth. We know that's not possible. Each man only has one physical life. And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that it's appointed to man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. You have one opportunity on this earth. While you may only have one life on this earth, your spirit does not die and is either going to dwell in eternal paradise with with the Lord Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of your sins, or you're going to experience the wrath of God in hell forever. Jesus refers here to to the difference between the natural and the spiritual. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Spirit of God, he says, blows wherever it wants to, just, just as the wind does. You, you don't know where it's going. You don't know where it is, but you can see the evidence of it. To be born again, it will produce evidence of a new life, a new spiritual life. You'll go from being a hater of God, even if you may not say that, to one who loves God. You'll no longer live for themselves entirely, but but live for God. This person will, will no longer be a slave of sin, but they'll be a slave of Christ. Their speech will reflect this. The way they spend their time and their money will reflect this. The Holy Spirit does not enter a man and allow him to continue to live like the world does. He will not enter a man and allow him to live like his old self. God is holy, and he's made a sanctuary within you, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit in which he dwells. That results in a new life change every single time. We refer to that as the fruit of the Spirit, and that's the evidence of a changed man. Brothers and sisters, 
Rejoice in that. If you've been born again, rejoice. God has made you new. You are a new creation in Christ. But for those who are outside of Christ, please hear me. You cannot enter the kingdom of God if you have not been born again. You've acknowledged that that God is sovereign. This is a work of God. But the Bible commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin. And when I say repent, I mean to turn from it. So if you're heading in this direction, uh, uh, living a life of sin, you need to turn the opposite direction and begin to obey God. Trust in Him for the salvation of your souls. Please do not leave here this morning if you've not been born again. Please do not leave here this morning without speaking to someone. If you've not trusted in Christ for your salvation. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that you could not live, will not live, have not lived. He died the death that you deserved, bearing the wrath of God on the cross. He was crushed for you. Please do not. You don't know when your time is coming. As I mentioned, every man lives once. Please do not stand before God when you leave this earth without having called upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Acknowledge Him as Lord. Trust in Him for your salvation. Confess your sin to God. And God will not cast you out of His presence. You must be born again. Please. I don't know if you've come here this morning rejecting Christ entirely. I I don't know if you've come here this morning believing you're a Christian, but maybe you're deceived. I don't know the situation. It's not enough to just come to church. It's not enough to just read your Bible. One must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let today be the day of salvation. Brethren, God has given us new life, and that new life comes with a living hope. This hope that Peter speaks of, this living hope, as a result of us being born again, is not like the world's hope. It's a hope that comes with certainty. This world does not have certainty, they lack confidence. And even we use this language sometimes that we hope for nice weather. We hope our team wins their match or, or is potentially world champions. Whether that be football or soccer, whatever the sport. But there's no certainty in any of those things. It, it completely lacks confidence, but there's certainty with God. We have certainty, brethren. And, and, it's, and it's living. It's not dead. It's living because it's inextricably linked to our new life in Christ. It's inextricably linked to our our new spiritual birth, the eternal life that we have. 
the amazing thing is we get to hang on to this hope as we continue to live in this world. And so we can have confidence in our great God who has accomplished this plan, which is plan A, by the way. It's not plan B. There is no plan B with God. Our God accomplishes all that he pleases. And as Peter says, it was done through the, Lord, uh, the resurrection, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, we know, after suffering on the cross, rose again from the dead after three days in the grave. And, and Peter could have pointed to the death of Jesus here. And it's so often what we do ourselves, and it's, and it's accurate to do so. You're, you're not incorrect But I believe in pointing to the resurrection here, Peter points to the consummation of Christ's saving work. Not the consummation of all things, but the consummation of the the end of Christ's earthly ministry. After his resurrection from the dead, Christ appeared to many witnesses, showing us that he is the risen Savior. And the grave could not hold him, as it's also not going to forever hold us either. Paul... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ was not raised, then your faith is in vain. If Christ was not raised, then you're still dead in your sins. And because of those witnesses and the testimony of Scripture and the new life that we've been given, we know that that's not the case. Christ has risen. Christ is a risen Savior. And so through the resurrection of Christ, God has given us new, new life to obtain an inheritance which is awaiting us. And this inheritance is unlike any other because it's entirely perfect. Peter describes it as imperishable, undefiled. It it will not fade away. It's even reserved in heaven. This means that, that God has a blessing in store for us in heaven that endures forever. This blessing is pure. It doesn't lose its value in any way. There's no decaying. Jesus said to, to lay up your treasures in heaven where no, no moth or, or rust will destroy it. No thieves can break in and steal it. This is, of course, unlike all of our possessions here on this earth. It's undefiled. It's free from contamination. Let's compare this to an earthly inheritance. If you happen to be in line for an earthly inheritance, even if it's a million dollars, it does not compare, brethren. No amount of money, no no amount of houses or cars, no matter what kind of car it is, can can compare, can match up to this. And and, and it truly is a grand thought, and and, and my, my, my own words will not be able to sufficiently describe this inheritance for you considering I've not yet beheld it before my eyes, but understand that it is held by God. It's reserved for you. Very briefly, let's turn to the book of Revelation. And I just want to read a passage to you and just allow the scripture to speak for itself. Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And it's a glorious picture. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is, is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It's done on the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'll give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then also quickly, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and they will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light or lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever. Isn't that a beautiful, glorious picture? So brethren, this, this inheritance is reserved for you. It's, it's not going away. God's not going to take it back. He's not going to return you to sin and death, but he's protecting you by his mighty power through your faith, which is secure. And one day we will experience this in all of its fullness. So God is sovereign of the entire universe. He's sovereign of your salvation. He's caused it, as Peter said, and he's keeping you. And your faith is the continued evidence of that keeping power. So as long as your faith remains and you don't turn away, which we know would not have been true faith to begin with, because God preserves his people. Jesus has fully accomplished redemption for those who God has given him, and that redemption will not be taken away from you. John MacArthur often says if that salvation relied on you, you'd lose it. But take heart, brethren. It doesn't rely on you. It's in the hands of God. And so, verses 3 through 5, Peter gives praise to God for causing us to be born again to obtain this inheritance. So we know to praise God for that heavenly inheritance. And so as we express our gratitude to him for that, I want you to take a hold of the next point, point number two, praise God for the ability to rejoice at all times. I apologize, I don't think I mentioned the first point. It was to praise God for your heavenly inheritance. That's number one if you're taking notes. Number two, praise God for the ability to rejoice at all times. Starting in verse six, Peter says, in this you rejoice. The this that he's referring to is that inheritance that we just discussed, that beautiful, glorious inheritance. So Peter points to what has just come before, that inheritance that we will obtain. Now, you've been saved, and you experience several benefits in this life, but your salvation is not yet fully realized. You've not seen the glories of heaven. You've not seen the glories of Christ 
And we have a yearning for that day. I trust that you do. Peter says to rejoice. Rejoice in that reality. Even the benefits of your salvation now, as great as they are in this world, there's far greater benefits to come. Greater than anything you could possibly think of. And greater than anything I can explain to you. So rejoice. Rejoice even though the troubles of this life weigh you down. Even though the trials cause you to be distressed. Brethren, rejoice. Rejoice in this. And I point you again to the indicative nature of what Peter is saying. He's, he's not commanding his audience anything. He's not commanding them to rejoice here. He's simply stating, in this, you greatly rejoice. So Peter either had some, some knowledge of how they were responding and handling themselves in their trials, or he was simply stating the, the expectation of the Christian. True joy, that, that ought to be the Christian's response. That ought to be our response. And in Acts 5, verses 40 through 41, we read about the apostles who for preaching and teaching the name of Christ, they were flogged and, and, and beaten. That means that they were, they, were, they were whipped repeatedly just for speaking the name of Christ. And how did they respond? They didn't limp away in shame, but instead they went away rejoicing. They went away rejoicing because they were worthy to be, to, to be considered, they were, they were considered worthy for suffering for Christ. And just think about that for a second. Is that how you'd respond? There's no doubt that that's a physically unpleasant example of suffering, one we we may or may not ever have to experience ourselves, but our suffering our suffering at this time doesn't typically go to that extent, but but definitely worth worth thinking about and thinking about how they responded. It, it is the call of the believer in the Lord Jesus. So the apostles, they understood what Peter was writing here. Peter was actually among them, if you go back and read Acts 5. So, so Peter's speaking from experience. But Peter and the apostles, they, they knew this life and, its, and all of its troubles were, were temporary. And, and I want us to be reminded of this. But Peter says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Just for a little while, he says. So in your own life, th- this may be days, it may be weeks, it may be months, it-, it may be your entire life. But it still does not compare to heaven. This, this trial, this pain, this suffering, it's not coming with you. It's not coming with you to heaven. It's only here with you while you're here on earth. And I want, you to, I want you to just look really briefly at 1 Peter uh, 17. The second half of that text, that verse, he says to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That sounds very temporary, doesn't it? That sounds like a very short period of time. 
Sounds like you may be checking in a, into a hotel or something like that. And so have that perspective. Keep that in mind that you are, as I referred to uh, previously in Philippians 3.20, Paul calls us citizens of heaven. Remind yourselves of that. If you've been born again, you're a citizen of heaven. That's where you're headed. You're not staying here on this earth forever. As Hebrews 13.14 says, you're, you're seeking a city which is to come. The one whose builder and maker is God. So be reminded of this. That temporary aspect of your sufferings, it should be an encouragement to us. I trust that it is. But allow me to point out a couple of other things that Peter says here. So first, he points to the necessity of these trials. He says, if necessary. He says that you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed. And that reality, that necessity is, is given to us in verse 7. Verse 7 gives us that, that purpose. What is the purpose behind these trials? You don't suffer for, for no reason. God has a purpose for these. Your suffering is not without gain. And Peter says and points us to the proof of your faith. It's so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And Peter uses gold. He uses gold as the contrast. Gold is, 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 is a, a very valuable metal, the most valuable. And, it, and it's also durable. And he says it's tested by fire. That's how they would purify it. That's how they would remove all the impurities from the gold. And so gold is refined by heat. And that's true of the Christian's faith. That's true of the Christian. The difference is that gold does not last. Gold, he says, perishes. So the, the result of that tested faith, that, that proof of your faith, is to purify and prove whether it's genuine. The true... So often, we hear of, of those who encountered a difficult time in their life, and, and they walked away from their faith. And they say that God just didn't help them. He just was not here for them. And, and, I, and I certainly do not want to undermine that struggle. The struggles are real in this life. But anyone whose faith does not stand until the end, was, was not a believer. Your, your faith was not legitimate. The true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is kept for the, for the day of salvation. Read that in verse 6. God is a keeping God. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And he's not going to lose a single one of them. All that the Father gives him will come to him, and he will by no means cast out. They will be his forevermore. Rejoice in that and take comfort in that. And that salvation is going to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. And, and I would certainly argue that praise, glory, and honor goes to Christ because it does. And that's, that is all throughout Scripture. We praise him. And that's, and that's one of the main points of this text. 
But I believe in this specific case, Peter is talking about the believer. He's talking about the faith of the believer. Believers will be rewarded for their faith. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, Peter wrote that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And he is specifically te- uh, uh, or speaking of elders there. But as I mentioned, New Te- the New Testament is, is full of these examples of, of, of the believer's reward and the believer's receiving a crown of glory. So we know that we'll be, re- we'll be rewarded for our obedience and for our faith and for praising God in our trials. So Peter, with the context in mind, is, is intending to encourage them. And, and that would certainly encourage them to know that the Lord Jesus is going to approve of them. He's going to give them the honor and the praise. And so even though right now the life that they're living, the world despises them, they slander them, they're they're receiving unjust punishment for their faith in him and and, and associating themselves with Jesus Christ, that rejection is not going to carry over. It's not going to come with them to the afterlife. But the Lord is going to grant them praise and honor for their faith that has tested, that has been tested, and, and it will outlast their situation. And I secondly want to point you to the fact that his readers were distressed. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it as grieved, grieved by various trials. And I think that is an even greater picture. I think it's a greater picture of how we actually do feel in these times, in times where we're suffering. So it, it is the, the Word of God affirms that pain. Let's not miss that. The Word of God affirms this. So while Peter does mention the act of suffering for righteousness' sake, affirming these various trials, uh, that various trials could could also mean many colored, many colored, so many kinds, all kinds of trials, not necessarily just persecution for faith in Christ, although we know all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But we, in this life, suffer in several different ways. That list is endless. And so I could be here a long time if I were to give an example of, of all the ways that you could suffer. Because this world is corrupt and it's, it's fading. But that grieving is real. We, we do grieve. The pain is real. And so, just because we're to be joyful... And to rejoice, it does not remove that reality. That pain, though, it's external. It's, it's of the flesh. It's temporary, as Peter had pointed out. That pain is going to come to an end. Our joy, on the other hand, is internal. It's spiritual. It's rooted in the only wise king of the universe. And that blessing of that heavenly inheritance that God has reserved for you. And so the point of me saying this is, number one, the text of Scripture says this. But we don't have to always pretend that everything is all right in this life from that earthly perspective. We can agree with Scripture that grieving is legitimate. 
that we don't allow that sorrow to overcome our hope, that we don't allow that sorrow to, to overpower the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul points to being sorrowful, but always rejoicing. You may experience sorrow, but rejoice, rejoice in this inheritance. What we need to focus on is that inheritance. And Colossians 3, 1 through 2 is one of the texts that I personally always return to. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. But let me read this to you. It says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. So, Brethren, as the text says, fix your thoughts on things above. Fix your thoughts on Christ. There's no greater thing you could fill your mind with. There's no greater thing to, to, to dwell on. None of your suffering is worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Dwell on Christ. Christ, your Savior who died for you. Dwell on heaven and the glories of heaven, and and, and life with him. Think of our Heavenly Father who's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And brethren, I, I urge you to praise God for this. This is only something that, that we as believers can do. Those outside of Christ cannot have joy in all circumstances because they are not at peace with God, but we are. Bless the Lord, brethren. So as verses 6 and 7 have, have drawn our attention to that praise for God, for the ability to rejoice at all times, to always rejoice regardless of our circumstances, I, I want to turn your attention to the last two verses of our passage. Third point, praise God for faith that does not rely on sight. Praise God for faith that does not rely on sight. I hope that, I, that I've already made this clear. But I, but I want to remind you of Peter's audience. They were, they were beaten down at this point. That's, that's why readers, uh, Peter is writing to them. He, he desires to encourage them. They were struggling with the very real trials that we've discussed. And so with verses 8 and 9, Peter continues to encourage them. But he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him. Does that, does that sound encouraging? That they've not seen the Lord? Wouldn't it be better if they saw Jesus face to face? Wouldn't that be greater? Isn't that something that you long for? Peter, in our text speaking on behalf of the great shepherd. The great shepherd being God. And he knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. He knows what they need. And so we we don't have to be confused by this. Now, Peter does speak from a perspective of one who has seen the Lord. We know that from reading the Gospels. Peter even tells us in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So is Peter rubbing this in or what's he doing here? 
Of course not. In John 20, 29, Jesus says, Blessed is he who has seen, yet has not believed. This is post-resurrection. He's speaking to, to Thomas, who believed because he saw Christ, because he saw him physically there with his wounds still, still, still there. Jesus says, Blessed is he who has not seen, yet has believed. It's a miracle that Peter's audience has not seen Christ, yet they still love him. And yet they do not see him, they still believe in him. Their, their, their belief and their love is, 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 is continuing, it's not fading, it's not, it's not wavering, but it remains. And it will remain for all those who have been raised to spiritual life. The fact that they do not see Christ, but, but still have this faith, this, this love for him, is evidence of true faith. One pastor illustrates it this way. As if you are swimming upstream in a godless culture, and I think we're definitely there, but we don't fail to keep swimming. It's a simple illustration, but we don't fail to keep swimming. Why? Because of God, because of Christ. God enables us through faith He enables us through this love and this joy to keep going. Brothers and sisters, does this describe you? Do you love Christ? Do you trust Christ? Do you have joy in Christ? Do you enjoy Christ? The Christian faith, contrary to what some may say, is not without feeling. We have an awe for our God. He's a great God, the one and only, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to not be without feelings. We're to have great joy. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice that even though you do not see Him, even though you don't physically walk with Christ as Peter did, you can still rejoice in great ways. Peter says that the joy is inexpressible. They can't find the words. The words to to express the great joy of salvation, they don't exist. They don't exist. There's no way to express this. The joy is clothed in glory as they're actively obtaining the salvation of their souls. That's encouraging because, as I said, this is evidence of true faith. It's evidence of the, of the new birth. God has caused them to be born again and that there, there, there is a future ahead of us. We have difficult times on this earth. It's not, going, it's not always going to be this way because salvation is actively being obtained. That, that word obtaining, it's, it's in the present tense. No, they don't see it in its fullness. No, we don't see it in its fullness now. But the true believer can have confidence. They can have confidence that they are His. They can have confidence that they're in Christ. That they're in the hands of God Almighty. Brethren, you can be sure that you are saved. You can be sure of it. You can have that assurance. Why or how? 
because you love Christ, because you have faith in Christ, because you believe Him. This is the hope of the Christian. The Christian clings to this reality here. And and I call you this morning to cling to your salvation. 1 John 5.1 says that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Your faith, your belief, is evidence of the work of God in you. And I would point you in your free time, in your time with the Lord, your, your personal Bible study time, I'd point you to study the book of, of 1 John, John's first epistle. It provides several evidences of salvation. Let me just list really quickly a couple, uh, some of those. 1 John shows us and tells us that true believers walk in the light. True believers confess their sin. True believers keep God's commands. True believers love the brethren. They love the brethren and they also desire to be with the brethren. True believers affirm sound doctrine. True believers follow after holiness, not sinless perfectionism, but obedience. And true believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They, as we've spoken of, they bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit of God. So again, I would point you to a study in the book of 1 John. If you lack assurance or simply need that encouragement, study that book. So believer, our God is a supreme ruler, the supreme ruler of the entire universe. He has, as Psalm 139.16 tells us, all the days of our life that were ordained for us, written in his books, when as yet there was not one of them. So before we were even born, before we lived a single day, God had already determined everything. He had already determined everything. And so that means that he's not surprised by your trials. He's not surprised by what you're facing, what you've been through. And he's determined them to be necessary for providing you with the assurance of your salvation. He desires for you to see the work that he's done in you as you travel this life, this world, and and, and go throughout various circumstances, he desires for you to be reminded of that salvation and the promises of heaven, the glories of heaven. He's not absent from your pain, but he does desire for it to accomplish its necessary end. And he's actively working through it. And even though you do not see him, You believe and you love exemplifying the reality of that work that he's doing in you, that he has done in you. One day you will be with him and we will rejoice. But now, today, I want to to call you to praise God. Praise God for all that he's done, all that he's doing, and all that he will do. And and as we read from Colossians Colossians 3, think on things above. Keep these things at the forefront of your mind. This this, This world can be so weary sometimes. But keep Christ in heaven at the forefront. 
Brethren, this is the believer's necessary response. That we praise God, we praise Him for our heavenly inheritance, that we praise Him for the ability to rejoice at all times, and we praise God for the faith that does not rely on sight. He is good. He is good. Rejoice in Him and cling to Him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, You are so glorious. We love You and we thank You for this faith that You've granted us in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the inheritance that is to come. The inheritance that cannot be fully or completely described in words, but it is great And nothing in this life compares to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Thank you for these glorious truths. Thank you for your word. And I pray that it accomplishes all that you intend for it to accomplish. Father, help us to be doers of your word, to think on things above to praise Christ at all times.